Hence, we ask that this system shall be examined without passion and that it shall be studied in its relations and logical consistency. We have already seen that it is abundantly established on scriptural authority. And when we add to this the evidence which comes from the laws of nature and the facts of human life, it becomes altogether possible, probable, just, and righteous. Viewed in this light, it ceases to be the arbitrary, illogical, immoral doctrine that its opponents delight to picture it, and becomes a doctrine which sheds glory on the divine majesty. These, of course, are not the doctrines which the natural man expects to find. Salvation by works is the system which most naturally appeals to unenlightened reason, and if we had been left to develop a system ourselves, there is hardly one chance in a thousand that we would have developed a system in which a Redeemer, acting in his redemptive capacity, would have earned these blessings and graciously given them to his people. Says Zanchius, the judgment of the flesh, or of mere unregenerate reason, usually starts back from this truth with horror, but, on the contrary, the judgment of a spiritual man will embrace it with affection. If Arminianism most commends itself to our feelings, says Frode, Calvinism is nearer to the facts, however harsh and forbidding those facts may seem. It is plain that Calvinism makes its appeal to divine revelation rather than to man's reason, to facts rather than sentiment, to knowledge rather than supposition, to conscience rather than emotion. As stated before, many people see nothing in this system but a strange sort of foolishness. But when studied with a little care, these doctrines are found to be neither so uncertain nor so difficult as men would lead us to believe. And the uncertainty and difficulty which does attach to them is due largely to our pride, love of sin, and ignorance of the real state of our heart. Those who have come to accept the system almost feel that they are living in a different world. So different is their outlook upon life. Wherever the sons of God turn their eyes, says Calvin, they behold such wonderful instances of blindness, ignorance, insensibility, as fills them with horror. While they, in the midst of such darkness, have received divine illumination and know it and feel it to be so. If we may paraphrase the words of Pope, we can most fittingly say of this subject, A little predestination is a dangerous thing. Then drink deep, or else touch not the sacred spring. Here, as in some other instances, first draughts confuse and unsettle the mind, but deeper draughts overcome the intoxicating effects and bring us back to our right senses. This sublime philosophy of God's sovereignty and man's freedom is found in all parts of the Bible. No attempt, however, is made to explain to us how these two factors are related. The unvarying assumption is that God is the sovereign ruler who governs even the intimate thoughts and feelings and impulses of men. Yet on the other hand, man is never represented as anything else than an intelligent, free, moral agent who is responsible for his actions. The doctrines of foreordination, sovereignty, and effectual providential control go hand in hand with those of the liberty and responsibility of rational creatures. It is not claimed that the doctrine of predestination is free from all difficulties, but it is claimed that its denial is attended with more and greater difficulties. 
that a being of infinite wisdom, power, and goodness would create a universe and then turn it adrift like some huge vessel without a pilot is a supposition which subverts our basic ideas of God, which contradicts the repeated testimony of the scriptures and which is contrary to our daily experience and common sense. Charles Hodge prefaces his discussion of the decrees of God with the following statement. It must be remembered that theology is not philosophy. It does not assume to discover truth or to reconcile what it teaches as truth with all other truths. Its providence is simply to state what God has revealed in his word and to vindicate those statements as far as possible from misconceptions and objections. This limited and humble office of theology, it is especially necessary to bear in mind when we come to speak of the acts and purposes of God. The things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2.11 In treating, therefore, of the decrees of God, all that is proposed is simply to state what the Spirit has seen fit to reveal on that subject. 6. The Westminster Assembly in the Westminster Confession This system of theology, which is usually referred to as Calvinism or the Reformed faith, finds its most perfect expression in the Westminster Confession. The Westminster Assembly was called together by the English Parliament. Its work extended over a period of five and one-half years and was finished in 1648. It was a representative body made up of 121 ministers, or theologians, 11 lords, 20 commoners from all the counties of England and the universities of Oxford and Cambridge, with seven commissioners from Scotland. And whether judged by the extent or ability of its labors, or by its influence upon later generations, it stands first among Protestant councils. The most important production of the assembly was its Confession of Faith, a matchless compendium of biblical truth, which was the noblest achievement of the best period of British Protestantism. It has rightly been called the theological masterpiece of the last four centuries. Dr. Warfield said of the Westminster Confession that it was the most complete, the most fully elaborated and carefully guarded, the most perfect and the most vital expression that has ever been framed by the hand of man, of all that enters into what we call evangelical religion, and of all that must be safeguarded if evangelical religion is to persist in the world. Dr. F. W. Lochtischer, in an address before the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church, USA, in 1929, referred to the Westminster Standards as those incomparable works of religious and theological genius, those noblest products of the great religious revival that we call the Reformation, those matchless formulas which at least English-speaking Christendom has come to regard as the most comprehensive, precise, and adequate embodiment of the pure gospel of the grace of God. And in the same address he also said, I realize that such a characterization of these venerable documents will appear to many, even among those whom I have the honor of addressing on this occasion, as an unwarranted exaggeration, if not a sheer anachronism. For the fashion of the day minimizes the value of creeds, and our confession, like many others, must undergo often the sorrowful experience of being damned with faint praise even in the home 
of its reputed adherents. Dr. Curry, who for a time was editor of the Methodist Advocate of New York, in an editorial on creeds, called the Westminster Confession the ablest, clearest, and most comprehensive system of Christian doctrine ever framed, a wonderful monument to the intellectual greatness of its framers. In these standards we have the grandest conception of theological truth that has ever entered the mind of man. As a system, it exhibits far more depth of theological insight than does any other, and it is worthy of the admiration of the ages. It is a system which produces men of strong doctrinal conviction. The person who holds it has a definite basis for belief and is not tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men in craftiness after the wiles of error. But while the Westminster Confession is so logically wrought out, so clear and comprehensive in its statements, how sadly it is neglected today by the members and even by the ministers of the Presbyterian and Reformed Churches. The Confession of Faith, says Dr. Frank H. Stevenson, the first president of the Board of Trustees of Westminster Theological Seminary, remains in the constitution of the Presbyterian Church, neglected, well-nigh forgotten, but unamended, untinkered with in twenty-five years of doctrinal confusion. It is the creed of the Church, and every line sustains a courageous stand, not for its own sake alone, but because it gives full honor to Christ, it is a worthy standard beneath which to carry on what Paul prophetically called the good fight of faith. With those words we fully agree. 7. These doctrines should be publicly taught and preached. The doctrine of sovereign predestination, as well as the other distinctive doctrines of the Calvinistic system, should be publicly taught and preached in order that true believers may know themselves to be special objects of God's love and mercy, and that they may be confirmed and strengthened in the assurance of their salvation. What a misfortune it is for the truth which reflects so much glory upon its author, and which is the very foundation of happiness in man, to be suppressed or to be confined merely to those who are specializing in theology. For the Christian, this should be one of the most comforting doctrines in all the scriptures. Furthermore, there is scarcely a distinctive Christian doctrine that can be preached in its purity and fullness without a reference to predestination. These doctrines are so reciprocally related and interwoven that any one has a bearing on the other, and this doctrine of predestination is the one which unites and organizes all the others. Apart from it, the others cannot be seen in their true light, nor their relative importance properly estimated. Concerning the place of the doctrine of predestination in the Christian system, Zanchius writes as follows, The whole circle of arts have a kind of mutual bond and connection, and by a sort of reciprocal relationship are held together and interwoven with each other. Much the same may be said of this important doctrine, it is the bond which connects and keeps together the whole Christian system, which, without this, is like a system of sand, ever ready to fall to pieces. It is the cement which holds the fabric together, nay, it is the very soul that animates the whole frame. It is so blended and interwoven with the entire scheme of gospel doctrine that when the former is excluded, the latter bleeds to death. 
we are commanded to go and preach the gospel, but insofar as any part of it is mutilated or passed over in silence, we are unfaithful to that command. Certainly no Christian minister is at liberty to take his scissors and cut out of his Bible all those passages which are not to his liking. Yet for all practical purposes, is not that the effect when important doctrines are deliberately passed over in silence? Paul could say to his Christian converts, I shrink not from declaring unto you anything that was profitable, and again I testify unto you this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I shrank not from declaring unto you the whole counsel of God. Acts 20, verse 20, 26, and 27. If the Christian minister today would be able to say this, let him beware of withholding such important truth. Paul repeatedly referred to these doctrines. His letter to the Romans, chapters 8 through 11, and to the Ephesians, chapters 1 and 2, are the most prominent in this respect. In writing to the Romans, he was in effect bringing these things before the whole world and stamping a universal imperator upon them. And if he considered them so important that they should be written to the primitive Christians in the young church at Rome, which he had not visited, we may be sure that they are important for Christians today. Christ and the apostles preached these things, and that not merely to a few people, but to the multitudes. There is hardly a chapter in the Gospel of John which does not either mention or imply election or reprobation. When a plain, straightforward, common-sense man asks, Is the doctrine of predestination taught in the Bible? The answer certainly should be in the affirmative, that it is constantly taught in both the Old and in the New Testaments. Furthermore, the Westminster Confession states it very explicitly. Hence, we are to teach it and to explain it in so far as that is possible. Paul urges us to put on the whole armor of God, yet what a large part of that armor a person lacks if he is ignorant of this great doctrine of predestination. Augustine rebuked those in his day who were passing over the doctrine of predestination in silence when he was sometimes charged with preaching it too freely. He refuted the charges by saying, that where scripture leads, we may follow. Luther, and especially Calvin, strongly emphasized these truths, and Calvin developed them so clearly and forcefully that the system has ever since been called Calvinism. Not only in the countries where the Reformation was at its best, but later in Holland, Scotland, England, at the time of the Westminster Assembly in America, during the early periods of her history, these doctrines were commonly preached and were the means of developing deep religious convictions in all classes of people. It was Calvin's conviction that the doctrine of election should be made the very center of the church's confession, and that if it were not thus emphasized, the church should be prepared to see this wonderful doctrine buried and forgotten. The correctness of his views is shown by the fact that those groups which did not emphasize it, whether in England, Scotland, Holland, the United States, or Canada, have, for all practical purposes, lost it completely. The one who is entrusted with the message from the king must give it as he has received it, and surely the greatest of all messages, that of predestination unto life, should not be passed over in silence. An ambassador, says Zanchius, is to deliver the whole message which he has been charged. He is not to omit any part of it, 
but must declare the mind of the sovereign he represents fully and without reserve. He is to say neither more nor less than the instructions of his court require, else he comes under displeasure, perhaps loses his head. Let the minister of Christ weigh this well. These are doctrines which have been expressly given by divine revelation. They make holy for the divine glory, bringing comfort and courage to the elect and leaving sinners without excuse. True, man does not like to be told that he is a sinner and unable to help himself. Such doctrine is too humiliating. If he is lost without Christ, the sooner he knows it, the better. For us to refuse to preach it is to be false to our Lord and neglect our duty to our fellow men. To ignore it is to act like a doctor who refuses to operate to save the life of a patient because he knows the operation will cause the patient pain. If these truths were fearlessly and courageously preached, modernism and unbelief would not creep into our churches as they are doing. The group of professing Christians would perhaps be smaller but more loyal and effective in Christian work. The preaching of these doctrines will, of course, stir up some controversy. But controversy is not to be looked upon as an unmixed evil. As long as error exists, there must be controversy. The attacks which were made upon the doctrines of the Church by pagans and heretics during the early Christian centuries and in the Middle Ages forced the Church to re-examine her doctrines, to work them out, to explain, purify, and fortify them. They compelled a closer study of the Bible. A number of brilliant churchmen arose who wrote books and articles on the Christian faith, and as a result the Church was greatly enriched by the intellectual and spiritual fruits thus produced. It is a mistake to say that people will no longer listen to doctrinal preaching. Let the minister believe his doctrines, let him present them with conviction and as living issues, and he will find sympathetic audiences. Today we see thousands of people turning away from pulpit discussions of current events, social topics, political issues, and merely ethical questions, and trying to fill themselves with the husks of occult and silly philosophies. In many ways we are spiritually poorer than we should be, because in our theological confusion and bewilderment we have failed to do justice to these great doctrinal principles. If rightly preached, these doctrines are most interesting and profitable. The author's experience as a Bible teacher has shown him that no other subjects so electrify and hold the attention of students as do these. Furthermore, we may ask, what excuse has the Presbyterian Church for its continued existence as a separate denomination if Calvinism is to be discarded as a non-essential. Much of our present-day weakness is due to the fact that our people have had but little instruction concerning these distinctive doctrines of the Presbyterian system, and this lack of instruction has led directly into the ecumenical movement in which attempts are being made to unite churches of very different types with only a minimum of doctrine. The doctrine of predestination is a doctrine for genuine Christians. Considerable caution should be exercised in preaching it to the unconverted. It is almost impossible to convince a non-Christian of its truthfulness, and in fact, the heart of the unregenerate man usually revolts against it. If it is stressed before the simpler truths of the Christian system are mastered, it will likely be misunderstood 
and in that case it may only drive the person into deeper despair. In preaching to the unconverted or to those who are just beginning the Christian life, our part consists mainly in presenting and stressing man's part in the work of salvation, faith, repentance, moral reform, etc. These are the elementary steps so far as man's consciousness extends. At that early stage, little need be said about the deeper truths which relate to God's part. As in the study of mathematics, we do not begin with algebra and calculus, but with the simple problems of arithmetic. So here, the better way is to first present the more elementary truths. Then after the person is saved and has traveled some distance in the Christian way, he comes to see that in his salvation, God's work was primary and his is only secondary, that he was saved through grace and not by his own works. As Calvin himself put it, the doctrine of predestination is not a matter for children to think much about. And Strong says, this doctrine is one of those advanced teachings of scripture which require for its understanding a mature mind in a deep experience. The beginner in the Christian life may not see its value or even its truth, but with increasing years it will become a staff to lean upon. But while it is true that this doctrine cannot be adequately appreciated by the unconverted nor by those who are just beginning the Christian life, it should be the common property of all those who have traveled some distance in that way. It is worthy of notice that in developing his institutes, Calvin did not treat the doctrine of predestination in the early chapters. He first developed the other doctrines of the Christian system and deliberately passed over this even in several cases where we might naturally have expected to find it. Then in the last part of his theological discussion it is developed fully and is made the crown and glory of the entire system. It may be further said that in preaching this doctrine care should be taken not to exaggerate any statements and also to show that it is founded not upon arbitrary will but upon infinite wisdom and love. 8. Ordination Vows and the Minister's Obligation Every minister and elder who is ordained in the Presbyterian and Reformed churches solemnly vows before God and men that he sincerely receives and adopts the confession of faith of his church as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures. Presbyterian Church, USA See Form of Government, Section 13, Part 4, and Section 15, Part 12. Since these confessions are thoroughly Calvinistic, this means that none but Calvinists can honestly and intelligently accept this ordination. An Arminian has not the slightest right to be a minister in a Calvinistic church, and any Arminian who does become a minister in a Calvinistic church lacks good morality as well as good theology. To declare one thing and believe the contrary is hardly consistent with the character of an honest man. And yet while our ordination vows are so thoroughly Calvinistic, how few ministers there are who proclaim these doctrines. One could scarcely tell from the pulpit utterances of the nominally Calvinistic churches today what the essentials of the Reformed faith really are. Our pulpits as well as our church publications, our schools and seminaries ring with the Arminian doctrines of merit and free will. The present-day Presbyterian and Reformed churches seem to have no adequate conception of the fundamental importance of their great doctrinal heritage. The writings of Calvin and Luther 
of the great Puritan divines and of the great theologians since the time should be better known to our young theologians than merely by their title. The scholastic form and cumbersome style of these works has perhaps deterred many from making a thorough study of them, but we should remember that the study of theology is not indulged in merely for the pleasure it affords. We do not expect to find novels when we take up the folios of the old masters in theology. Many young men enter the ministry without any real acquaintance with the doctrine of the church in which they intend to serve, and when they hear of any who preach agreeably to the Westminster standards, they consider them as setters forth of strange doctrines. The great need of the church today is for men of firm convictions and settled minds, rather than the latitudinarian type of modernists or liberals who wander to and fro, rejoicing that they have no dogmatic opinions and no theological preferences. It seems that the majority of our ministers no longer believe these Calvinistic doctrines and that many of them, contrary to their solemn ordination vows, are putting forth by crafty and unfair methods their strongest efforts to destroy the faith that they have so solemnly sworn they have been moved by the Spirit to defend. If these doctrines are true, they should be clearly and aggressively taught and defended in our churches, seminaries, and colleges. If they are not true, they should be stricken from the confession of faith. Honesty should be as important in theology as in trade or commerce, as important in a religious denomination as in a political party. A Presbyterian minister is not a freelance, but is a presbyter who has pledged himself to this system of doctrine. Those who deny these doctrines in Presbyterian pulpits are being false to their ordination vows and should withdraw to denominations holding their views. Certainly no church officer has a right to accept the honors and remunerations which come from the outward acceptance of a creed which he does not believe or teach. The creed of a church, says Shedd, is a solemn contract between church members, even more so than the platform of a political party is between politicians. The immorality of violating a contract some people do not seem to perceive when a religious denomination is concerned, but when a political party is the body to be affected by the breach of the pledge, none are sharper to see and none are more vehement to denounce the double dealing. Should a faction arise within the Republican Party, for example, and endeavor to alter the platform while still retaining the offices and salaries which they had secured by professing entire allegiance to the party and promising to adopt the fundamental principles upon which it was founded and by which it is distinguished from the Democratic or other political parties, the charge of political dishonesty would ring through the whole rank and file of republicanism. And when in the exercise of party discipline such factionists are turned out of office and perhaps expelled from the political organization, if the cry of political heresy hunting and persecution should be raised, the only answer vouchsafed by the republican press would be that of scorn. When political dishonesty would claim toleration under cover of more liberal policies than the party is favoring and would keep hold on party emoluments while advocating different sentiments from those of the mass of the party, it is curtly told that no one is compelled to join the Republican Party 
or to remain in it, but that if a person does join it or remains in it, he must strictly adopt the party creed and make no attempts, secret or open, to alter it. That a Republican creed is for Republicans and no others seems to be agreed on all sides, but that a Calvinistic creed is for Calvinists and no others seem to be doubted by some. If in the heart of the Democratic Party a school should arise which would claim the right, while remaining in the party, to convert the body to Republican principles and measures, it would be told that the proper place for such a project is outside of democracy, not within it. The right of the school to its own opinions would not be disputed, but the right to maintain and spread them with the funds and influences of the Democratic Party would be denied. They would say to the malcontents, We cannot prevent you from having your own peculiar views and do not desire to, but you have no right to ventilate them in our organization. Calvinistic churches are sometimes accused of intolerance or persecution when departures from the church creed are made the subject of judicial inquiry. We submit, however, that this charge is unjust and that such a church is entirely within her rights when she requires her ministers and teachers to conform their preaching and teaching to the denominational standard. From these considerations it will be clear why many of us have so little enthusiasm for church union movements which would unite groups holding widely different systems of doctrine. We believe the Calvinistic system to be the only one set forth in the scriptures and vindicated by reason and therefore the most stable and influential in the production of righteousness. Yet to all who differ from us, we cordially allow the right of private judgment and sincerely rejoice in the good which they are able to accomplish. We rejoice that other systems of theology approximate ours, yet we cannot consent to impoverish our message by setting forth less than what we find the scriptures to teach. If a union could be consummated in which Calvinism would be accepted as the system of truth taught in the Bible, we should be delighted to enter into it. But we believe that for us to accept anything short of that would be to surrender vital truth, and that anything vague enough to embrace Calvinism and other systems of doctrine would not be worth propagating. We believe that the superficial advantage of numbers which would result from such a union would amount to but little when balanced against the spiritual discord which would inevitably follow. Hence, we wish to remain Presbyterian until the doctrines of the Reformed faith, which are simply the doctrines of the Word of God, become the doctrines of the Church Universal. These doctrines, now so disregarded or unknown if not openly opposed, were universally believed and maintained by the Reformers, and following the Reformation were written into the creeds, catechisms, or articles of every one of the Protestant churches. Anyone who will compare the printed pulpit utterances of our own day with those of the Reformers will have no difficulty in perceiving how contradictory and irreconcilably hostile they are to each other. 9. The Presbyterian Church is truly broad and tolerant. While the Presbyterian Church is preeminently a doctrinal church, she never demands the full acceptance of her standards by any applicant for admission to her fold. A credible profession of faith in Christ is her only condition of church membership. 
She does demand that her ministers and elders shall be Calvinists, yet this is never demanded of lay members. As Calvinists, we gladly recognize as our fellow Christians any who trust Christ for their salvation, regardless of how inconsistent their other beliefs may be. We do believe, however, that Calvinism is the only system which is wholly true. And while one can be a Christian without believing the whole Bible, his Christianity will be imperfect in proportion as he departs from the biblical system of doctrine. In this connection, Professor F. E. Hamilton has well said, A blind, deaf, and dumb man can, it is true, know something of the world about him through the senses remaining, but his knowledge will be very imperfect and probably inaccurate. In a similar way, a Christian who never knows or never accepts the deeper teachings of the Bible which Calvinism embodies may be a Christian, but he will be a very imperfect Christian, and it should be the duty of those who know the whole truth to attempt to lead him into the only storehouse which contains the full riches of true Christianity. The Calvinist, says Dr. Craig, does not differ from other Christians in kind, but only in degree, as more or less good specimens of a thing differ from more or less bad specimens of a thing. We are not all Calvinists as we travel the road to heaven, but we shall all be Calvinists when we get there. It is our firm conviction that every redeemed soul in heaven will be a thoroughgoing Calvinist. Christians in general must admit that when we all attain unto the unity of the faith, Ephesians 4.13, and know the full truth, we shall be either all Calvinists or all Arminians. It must always be kept in mind that Calvinism includes much more than those peculiar features which distinguish it from Arminianism. It holds firmly to the great doctrines of the Trinity, the divinity of Christ, the miracles, the atonement, the resurrection, the inspiration of the scriptures, etc., which form the common faith of evangelical Christendom. In regard to the truly broad and tolerant nature of the Presbyterian Church, we shall now take the privilege of quoting rather extensively from Dr. E. W. Smith's admirable little book, the Creed of Presbyterians, more than 65,000 copies of which have already been distributed. The Catholicity of Presbyterianism, its liberality of thought and feeling, its freedom from sectarian narrowness and bigotry is one of its crowning characteristics. The Catholicity of Presbyterianism is no mere sentiment. It is not a thing of individual profession or platform declamation. It is rooted in our creed, it is proclaimed in our standards, it is embodied in our doctrine of the church. The visible church, says our confession, consists of all those throughout the world who profess the true religion together with their children. Confession of Faith, Sections 25, Part 2. Thus formally and publicly do we repudiate the name of the church and claim only to be a church of Jesus Christ. Not only do our standards contain no denunciation of the antagonistic views of sister evangelical churches, they are said to be the only church standards in existence which make explicit and authoritative recognition of other evangelical churches as true branches of the Church of Jesus Christ. Book of Church Order, Chapter 2, Section 2, Paragraph 2. 
to the communion of saints our confession devotes an entire chapter we are there taught that our holy fellowship and communion in each other's gifts and graces in worship and mutual service of love is to be extended unto all who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus section 26 part 2 the Catholicity of our standards finds beautiful expression in the Presbyterian article toward all sister evangelical churches. While a branch of evangelical Christendom unchurches all sister denominations, such action is abhorrent to Presbyterian feeling and unknown to Presbyterian practice. Members and ministers of other evangelical churches we treat as, in all respects, true members and ministers equally with ourselves of the Church of Christ. While several of these churches decline giving letters of dismission from their own to other communions, we make no distinctions. We dismiss members to Baptists, Episcopal, or other Christian congregations in precisely the same form and with the same affectionate confidence as though we were transferring them to churches of our own name. Some evangelical denominations deny the validity of ordinances performed by sister churches, and when a minister or a member would come to them from a sister denomination, the one must be reordained, the other rebaptized. Such denial is utterly contrary to the Presbyterian spirit and usage. We never repeat the rite. The ordinance of a sister church we accept as no less valid than if performed by ourselves. While from many evangelical pulpits the ministers of sister churches are shut out, or from co-officiation in sacred ceremonies, such exclusion is never practiced by us. It is alien to the Presbyterian heart and habit. We are as free and cordial in asking Episcopal, Baptist, or other evangelical ministers to occupy our pulpits or assist us officially in administering the Lord's Supper as in asking our own pastors. We unchurch no true Christian. We reject no ministerial ordination. We repudiate no administered scriptural sacrament of a sister church. Returning good for evil, we recognize our high church fellow clergyman as a true minister of Christ and our immersionist brother as having been validly baptized. We respond with all our hearts to the Amen of the Methodists. We join with our brethren in any psalmody that puts the crown upon the brow of Jesus, and most lovingly do we invite our fellow Christians of every name and denomination to partake with us of the emblems of his broken body and his shed blood. We have no prejudice, no peculiarity, no whim of any kind to restrict our Christian sympathies and dig a chasm between us and other servants of our Master. Our Catholicity is wide as evangelical Christendom. And again, he says, the Catholicity of the Presbyterian Church appears in her one condition of church membership. She demands nothing whatever for admission to her fold except a confession, uncontradicted by the life of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The applicant is not asked to subscribe to our standards or assent to our theology. He is not required to be a Calvinist, but only to be a Christian. He is not examined as to his orthodoxy, but only as to his faith in and obedience unto Christ. Confession of Faith, section 28, part 4. 
He may have imperfect notions about the Trinity and the Atonement. He may question infant baptism, election, and final perseverance. But if he trusts and obeys Christ as his personal Savior and Lord, the door of the Presbyterian Church is open to him, and all the privileges of her communion are his. When churches prescribe conditions of membership other than the simple conditions of salvation, they are guilty of making it harder to get into the church than into heaven. To such ecclesiastical tyranny and exclusiveness, the Presbyterian Church stands in utter contrast. Her standards declare that as simple faith in Christ makes us members of God's family, so those who have made a profession of faith in Christ are entitled to all the rights and privileges of the Church. Book of Church Order, Section 3, Part 3. Thus, with a broad and beautiful Catholicity, the gates of our Presbyterian Zion are flung wide as the gates of heaven for all the children of God. After declaring that the Presbyterian and Reformed constitute the largest Protestant family in the world, Dr. Smith, in eloquent language, gives the following grand summary of her missionary achievement. More Catholic and imposing even than the Presbyterian numbers is the worldwide range of the Presbyterian Empire. While the adherents of other Protestant communions are more or less massed in single countries, the Lutherans in Germany, the Episcopalians in England, the Methodists and Papists in the United States, the line of the Presbyterian Church is gone out through all the earth. She thrives in this hour in more continents among a greater number of nations and peoples and languages than any other evangelical church in the world. As a witness in continental Europe, she has the historic Presbyterian Reformed Churches of Australia, Bohemia, Galatia, Moravia, Hungary, Belgium, France, Germany, Italy, Greece, the Netherlands, of Russia, and Switzerland, and Spain. She is rooted and fruitful in England, Scotland, the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the Dutch East Indies. The people of this faith and order gird the earth. Presbyterianism possesses a power of adaption unparalleled by any other system. It has furnished an unduly large proportion of the outstanding preachers, evangelists, editors, authors, educators, statesmen, civic leaders, and from its abundant spiritual life are going forth the mighty forces of Christian missions into all the heathen world. 10. Reasons for the Depressed Fortunes of Calvinism Today This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 Four five zero 